0: to Talking Scared. I'm your host Neil McRobert and this week a little bit of sanity is restored to the world with the furious orange finally leaving the White House. With all that happening it's quite hard to dwell on dark hideous things but I have a job to do and by god I'll do it so here we go. This week's guest is none other than the queen of British crime and horror CJ Tudor. She smashed into the bestsellers list in 2018 with The Chalk Man, a heady mix of gritty British thriller and Stephen King-tinged childhood horror. Since then, she's barely let up, and now she's back with her fourth novel, The Burning Girls. It will be published by Penguin and Michael Joseph Books tomorrow, January 21st. CJ is a far more cheerful guest than her stories would imply, The Burning Girls is full of sacrificed children, religious crimes and small-town darkness. Oh, and a couple of ghosts for good measure. Despite all that, CJ spends a lot of time laughing, it seems, and this episode took quite a bit of editing to make it sound suitably dark. Along the way, we discuss the line between crime and horror and whether she crosses it, how to write a vicar protagonist, and what it felt like when Stephen King said he liked her book. Oh, and I may cause a bit of controversy with my cinematic opinions. But off we go. To attend prayer in a small English chapel, just don't look under the floorboards. Let's talk scared. So hi, CJ. Happy New Year. I think we're still roughly in the window where that hasn't gotten too awkward to say. (laughs)
1: I think we'd just about we could just about get away with it now. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm, I'm sort of thinking I shouldn't really be saying it to people anymore. But but you know what? It's the first week, so it's was all right. <laughs> I'm not sure that. Year is that good, actually, really. It's like, bearable New Year, not so good New Year. You know, we thought 2020 was bad.
0: Yeah, for a bit of context, we're recording this the day after Rome was burnt, the protests in, in, <laughs> in, well, I say riots in, in Washington. So by the time this goes to air, who knows what will have happened there. But how, how are you anyway? How are you and where are we speaking to you from?
1: I'm good. Um, you're speaking to me from um sunny East Sussex um in the south of the UK. So, yeah, I'm, I'm good. We're obviously, we've got a little girl. So we are, my husband and I are trying to juggle the whole homeschooling thing again. Now we're back in a, another lockdown. But, but generally, you know, I'm good. We're quite lucky. We live in a nice part of the UK. We've got outside space and countryside. And, you know, my husband and I both work from home. So that does make juggling things a lot easier than it is for a lot of parents in this situation. So yeah, so we're, we're getting by.
0: Good to hear. It's especially meaningful to me to have you as a guest because your work has got a kind of particular place in my bookish heart. Your first novel, The Short Man, was the very, very first review copy I was ever sent by a publisher.
1: Oh, wow. That's cool.
0: Yeah. In a certain slant of light, you you kicked off the process that has led all the way to this podcast.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: And you're with me today, virtually at least, to talk about your new novel, The Burning Girls. Yes. I ask every author to do this. Can you give us enough info about the story to tee this interview up?
1: Well, yes. The Burning Girls is my fourth novel and it is set in the fictional, but not so very far away from where I might live, village of Chapel Croft. Um, in East Sussex, a very small, quite isolated little village. And Reverend Jack Brooks and teenage daughter Flo moved to Chapelcroft to take over from the previous vicar of the parish. They moved from um, a larger city, and not entirely sort of willingly or happily, but events have conspired to place them in this small village of Chapelcroft. But they soon discover that it's a a tiny close-knit community with some rather strange traditions and a rather dark history. And almost straight away, Flo um, is plagued by strange visions of burning girls in the chapel. And they start to receive quite sinister, threatening messages. And then find out that no one mentioned that the previous vicar of the chapel actually killed himself. So Chapelcroft has some very deep and dark secrets. And Jack wouldn't touch them if it wasn't for Flo, because she has to protect her daughter. Because the past is catching up with both Chapelcroft and with Jack. Pitching it, I think I described it as something like the wicker man meets sharp objects. So <laughs> it's it's kind of got elements of folk horror. It is a mystery. In this small village 500 years ago, eight Protestant martyrs were burnt at the stake. 30 years ago, two teenage girls disappeared. And as I've said, two months ago, the previous vicar killed himself. And all those bits of history and events all sort of start to tie together when Jack and daughter Flo arrive at the chapel and they sort of, they're, they're all entwined I think moving here, because th- that was what really inspired the idea for the book, moving to where we now are, which just happens to be quite a small village um, in East Sussex, really sparked off the idea. And actually what really sparked the idea was the day we actually came to view the house we now live in, uh, about two and a half years ago, we drove past this tiny little chapel up on the main road. And I saw this chapel and it just looked so unusual, this sort of small square white building. that looked It looked like the sort of chapel you should see in like a small dusty town in, in Midwest America or something. One of those kind of Baptist chapels. And it looked really out of place in this small Sussex village. And straight away, there was just something about it that was just really, really creepy. And I knew I had to write a book about it. But then the more I found out about the area, the more I found out that, that you know, there, there is this dark history. The martyrs who were burnt at the stake in the book is based upon the Lewis martyrs who were burnt at the stake in Queen Mary's purge of the Protestants 500 years ago. And so the idea that there was this kind of dark history, and of course Lewis here has this tradition of bonfires and burning effigies every bonfire night. So I sort of used that to tie in as well with the burning girls. Um, In Chapelcroft, the villagers make small effigies of the burning girls to commemorate the burnt martyrs, basically. And so all those things kind of came together in this book, really. So yeah, so I'm I'm just hoping they don't like run me out of the village now with flaming torches once everybody reads it.
0: I'd actually written down Lewis Martyrs and I wanted to show off about knowing about them. And you've taken the wind out of my sails there by mentioning that. Oh, sorry. (laughs) It's absolutely fine. That's great. I mean, the very fact that you introduced that in the way you did shows how much there is um, in this novel. There's there's a lot of stuff going on. It's quite a complicated, complex community and and history and a lot of overlapping things. I've read quite a few reviews that have said that this is the, the book in which you have crossed the line from crime writing to horror writing. Ooh. And I wonder what you think about I'll tell you my opinion in a minute, but I wonder what you think about that, first of all.
1: Um, it's interesting, actually, because I don't think it's particularly got much more of a horror element, you know, or a, I hate to use the word supernatural, but um, a supernatural element than any of my other books. If pushed, I'd probably say that Annie Thorne veered more into horror out of my four books. But I suppose there is that kind of folk horror element. You know, there are some traditional horror scares and images, perhaps, and that, and that whole small village thing and creepy goings on. Um, some sort of the imagery, perhaps, I, I can see that. I try and tread a line, I think, between horror and crime. But, but sometimes I think you're going to find that some books veer more one way or the other. I'm quite happy if, if people, whichever way people think they veer, to be honest with you. I mean, I love horror. I enjoy crime and mystery as well. But I, I think perhaps with this book and perhaps with the next book, and as I'm already planning the book after that, I am yearning perhaps a little bit to move more into the horror aspect, maybe a tiny bit away from the crime aspect.
0: What does that mean to you when you say the horror? Is that is that the supernatural or, or is it just the severity of what's going on?
1: I think it's taking it away from some of the more cliched psych thriller kind of tropes, I suppose. I've, I've tried to very, very hard with most of my books, actually walk a line between sort of psych thrillers and mystery and something a bit more supernatural, a bit more horror, a little bit weirder. But I, I find myself yearning to, to move into to sort of slightly slightly different territory. I, you know, I, love, I love crime and thrillers, but I also love books that do something very different with the genre. Um, I'm a little bit psych thriller myself at the moment perhaps why I'm not getting down my TBR pile. I really love thrillers and locked room mysteries that do something different with the genre. For example, like Stu Turton's The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, or I think Hannah Jameson's The Last played really well with that kind of locked room trope, but, but put a different spin on it. And I think that's definitely more the direction I want to go in, to so kind of push the boundaries a bit more that way.
0: Well, that's exciting, because to, to go back to my initial question about the thing about horror and crime, I disagree with those those reviews that say this is a kind of threshold moment because I I think the short man was a an out and out horror novel yeah I had a crime sort of paraphernalia to it I thought but it was it was a horror novel but one of the things I really like about your career one of the things I've really enjoyed is that in the four books you've you've actually put out you've never actually been absorbed into that uh how would I put it that kind of like machine tooled industry of, you know, the girl on the train style, <laughs> you know, every, every, tra- every thriller is is packaged and, and present in the same yeah. way. There's always a sense that your books are, are already slight outliers from that mainstream thriller machinery. Is that a conscious thing? Or is that something that's been kind of happened at, at, at a publishing level that's nothing to do with you?
1: I think I've been very lucky with my publishers that they've kept faith in me and allowed me to kind of forge my own way because it took me a long time to get published because for a long time I was told that nobody wanted to kind of read my sort of mix of horror thriller that you know you you had to kind of pick a side in a way and when I had an agent many years ago they very much wanted me to write that kind of straight crime thriller and I just kept going a bit Stephen King on them and they kept trying to take it out and I kept trying to put it back in. And, you know, we ended up with a mishmash of, of nothing and it, it, it really didn't work out. And it burnt me quite badly, I think, because it's probably another seven years after that, that I found an agent with the chalk man. Because I think I've been, you know, I've been told quite you know, firmly that eight, you know, no publisher was going to look at my type of material. And I, and I do, you know, that, that is what I do. I, you know, I grew up reading horror. I love that, That's, that put, putting that slightly weird, scary, creepy element in the books. And I've never, ever, ever wanted to write just like a straight psychological thriller or crime procedural book. It does not interest me at all. If I can't add something else to it or a twist on that kind of trope, I wouldn't be interested. It's just not me. I mean, I've read some brilliant, you know, psychological thrillers um, and room mysteries and, and, and lots of books in that genre. And I've read some that have been done really, really well. And I've thoroughly enjoyed them. Others, not so much. Um, but but the authors I've enjoyed the most have generally done it because they've managed to put a fresh twist on it. Um, It is hard you know there's there's so many books out there so many books being published to find a voice that stands out or to to add something fresh to that genre is difficult and to be fair publishers don't necessarily want authors to do something fresh with it. There is very much that case of these are selling very nicely let's have lots more of the same which is why you do tend to get a, a lot of thrillers on a similar subject seemingly sort of come out at the same time at the moment it seems to be the locked true mystery in either a snowy retreat or some kind of island or retreat or something that seems to be the current favorite or you know evil mums and daughters or I mean, I'm really really over that uh, I think what I'm really over actually and I was thinking about this the other day is that whole trope of women being vile to each other that you know it seems that so many books kind of reinforce that kind of idea that Every woman is, is plotting against her best friend, sister, mother, daughter, etc., etc., and on we go. And I'd really like to read some books, and I think from female writers, because, we, you know, we are as guilty of this as, as male writers, where we have some books where women are buddies, where women are working together. There's not someone just plotting against the other woman all the time. I'm kind of, I'm really kind of sick of those type of books because I think female characters deserve a bit a bit more than that. Sorry, I just went off on a rant there. No,
0: that that's great. If I can recommend one book, have you heard of or read Rachel Harrison's The Return?
1: You don't know actually, and it was on my list of books that I really did want to read because it sounded really good.
0: It's a novel that is a, exactly what you're saying. It's about female friendship. It's about these four four women who who get together after one of them comes back, having disappeared for two years. And there's, there's a sort of supernatural friss onto it, of like what has happened to this woman while she's been gone. I mean, spoken to my wife, it, it does sound like the most authentic portrayal of female friendship I've, I've ever read in a, in a genre novel. So I'd recommend that potentially as a bit of a balm.
1: Okay, I would like to read a lot more of that because I think it, it's a bit of a trope now that, that women basically, when they're being nice to each other, are really just being vile behind each other's backs. So I, I don't know. I think I think we I say I think we can do better.
0: I think we can blame Reese Witherspoon and Pretty Little Liars for that because Let's just
1: blame, the... let's blame Reese Witherspoon for everything. I've never trusted that woman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, so we, we've gone broad. Let's get specific about the Burning Girls. Yes. Because I'm I'm intrigued. I've got to ask: Why did you choose to make your protagonist a vicar? Because it feels like there could have been many easier ways to come up with a reason to relocate these characters to Sussex. So oh, yeah, why burden yourself with all that baggage of faith and morality? Or have I answered my own question there? Is that the rich stuff you wanted to explore?
1: I, no, I did ask myself that same question, actually. I think I, I had this idea. I saw the chapel. That was the starting point. So immediately it felt like the character kind of needed to be in that, they needed to be invested in that chapel, they needed to be in that chapel, they needed to be tied to it somehow. So therefore, you know, the vicar seemed like a good idea. Then obviously you start to go, well, you know, I can't make the vicar just kind of an an ordinary traditional type of just normal sort of vicar that we would expect. You know, they have to be somewhat different. I thought to make the vicar a traditional male vicar, we've seen flawed male characters in that type of role many times before, was also a bit of a cliche. So I wanted to kind of take it one step further and not do that with Reverend Jack Brooks. (laughs) So yeah, so I want again, I I just felt like there was there was a lot to be mined from the character. But you're right. Then you've got the sort of juggling act of making this character, you know, um, a flawed character who you know who smokes, who isn't sort of a perfect perfect vicar as you would expect. But then making it still realistically a vicar, if that makes sense. Because I I'm not religious at all. So, if you can hear something there, that is the the dog that's just come up to see me. So, yeah, so I I am not religious. I would probably term myself as agnostic. So, I kind of had to try and place myself in the head of of sort of this character and think of, you know, how perhaps what what their relationship with God and the church might be, you know, what have have got them into the church and and try and make it feel as real as possible. I I did have um, a a vicar who I kind of know bizarrely through Twitter who was really helpful, certainly with sort of the practicalities of some of the. The stuff of how you know that the church works, um, and and the rest I sort of you know just kind of I just tried to imagine myself as a vicar in a weird way I suppose, and try and try and get that relationship she had with sort of God and the church. But it, but it did I, I, I confess that I, I confess she says I'm really getting into the role that it, it did kind of in some ways make it more difficult. But I think sometimes when writing is more difficult, it's actually more rewarding and it it pays dividends in the long run. There were points in this book where I actually really did sort of question whether it was all going to work and whether I was going to finish it and whether it was going to be any good when it was finished. And I was late delivering it. it, It was a toughie to write, actually. And I remember even when I handed it in and finished all the edits, there was a part of me going, Yes, I still don't know if it's any good or not but fortunately people do seem to like it and I, I do think that's why you're, you're sometimes not the best judge of, of your own work at all and actually you know if a book feels too easy to write sometimes there's a reason it feels too easy to write and that's because you perhaps haven't put enough work into it.
0: Well there's clearly a lot of work in this I could say it's really layered and um, going back to the vicar question about the baggage of morality and all that Perhaps I'm doing this thing there where I you know that crass thing where I tell an author what the themes of her novel are, but <laughs> oh, you, I you.
1: You're far away i have got a clue half the time <laughs> yeah
0: and having the vicar as a as a kind of you know a, a lens on the world somehow matches that theme in that question really well?
1: I always find it really interesting. I actually believe that most people are capable of doing terrible things given the right set of circumstances. Um, I think we've seen that throughout history, you know? We've seen in the last 24 hours. <laughs> exactly, we've seen it in the last 24 hours. Through fear, through manipulation, through psychological conditioning, uh, through wanting to preserve their own lives, you know? I think all of us are capable of killing someone given the right circumstances. Absolutely. You know, I could say without doubt, if someone threatened or hurt my child, I could kill someone without compunction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't think twice about it to protect my daughter. And I think I'm a really nice person. I should hesitate to add that. But I think there are circumstances that can push anybody into into doing something terrible. So I think we all have that grey area within, within us. Even, even the best people. And conversely, I, I do think that people who have done bad things are still capable of some form of redemption quite often, are still capable in some cases of doing good. I think, you know, doing one terrible thing doesn't necessarily mean you are an evil person. Obviously, there are there are degrees of this. But again, it all comes back to the circumstances of pushing someone into doing that, that awful thing or committing that crime. I think very rarely would I say that anybody is born evil or bad but on the other hand i don't think we're born good
0: yeah and you're very fair in this novel as well like without giving any spoilers away to the resolution there are there are revelations about characters yes you don't always kind of hold them firmly to account for their prior actions and for something which is um you know a thriller it's a quite a nuanced Take on people's motivations and, and their actions.
1: I don't like characters who are these are the good guys, these the bad guys. Um, you know, and I think you know most most writers do try and make their characters relatively nuanced in that way. I don't like just one one baddie, sort of for example, say one serial killer that you know that the cops are, are setting out to catch. I, I prefer to have just lots of I don't know various people who all perhaps have their, their motives, who all can do good stuff, who all can do bad stuff. I mean, it was something that going back right back to the Chalk Man. I liked the idea of, of, you know, every character in a way having secrets, every character being guilty of something. I think sometimes crimes and bad things that happen generally in, in real life aren't the result of just one bad person doing one bad thing. Often there are culmination of events um, of lots of people, you know, doing certain things. And it's like sort of dominoes toppling that culminates in a terrible thing happening. And, you know, as, you know, I think that was very much kind sort of the structure of the chalk man. And I think that's what what quite often happens with a lot of crimes. There's there's not one one terrible... There's a lot of things that build up to something happening. And so, yeah, again, in The Burning Girls, I wanted, you know, sort of all the characters to kind of have their the good and bad sides, I guess, because because we all do, don't we?
0: We do. And, and in terms of, like, all your characters, you have a real kind of penchant for, how would I describe, these sort of damaged difficult loners you know sometimes quite unlikable protagonists eddie in the chalk man then is it is it joe in the taking of annie thorne
1: i, I have to think back now because i wrote the chalk man in 2015 so it was, a, it was a few years ago yeah so eddie in the chalk man and joe in, in annie thorne, um, and then gabe in, in the other people They're, yeah and i mean jack to an extent as well um in the burning girl
0: What's the pull of these oddballs and misfits for you? Because I think that may be what sets your work aside from that formulaic cycle of stuff we're talking about is you're you're often looking at the actual world through the eyes of someone who, who isn't necessarily a grounded, healthy set of eyes.
1: Yeah. And I think you don't make fan, I don't think so, I I'm, I'm unique in that. I think authors, a lot of authors, you know, you, you enjoy writing those those more complex characters. You know, it would be it would be as boring as hell to write a character who was just the, the good hero person. It's fun to write a character with flaws, and, you know, it, and I think it's more interesting to read about a character with flaws who's not necessarily the, the sort of straight-down-the-line character. But, I, yeah, I do I do identify, I suppose, with the oddballs and outcasts. There, there is a degree of that. Um, I, I really, I think, understand that position of being slightly on the outside looking in um, and, and sort of not perhaps... Entirely conforming to society's norms, but <laughs> perhaps that's why I do what I do. You know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I do understand those characters because, you know, I, I know. Perhaps growing up, I was not one of the the popular people. I kind of have. I understand that outsider feeling, feeling pushed to the outside um, feeling. That I perhaps invest in a lot of my characters, and and you know, and, and of course, they are they are. More interesting characters to write as well. I mean, I I really deeply loved Eddie in the Chalk Man, and he was a strange character. But but as someone who's perhaps you know had understands compulsive behaviour in a part and understands that kind of feeling of being on the outside of what's going on, I think that's perhaps something I do put into my characters because I do identify with that very very keenly. And I also don't want to write about the heroic characters. I don't want to write about the you know the the good looking, clever, muscular cop who you know can knock someone out with a single punch and i don't want to write that character i don't want to write about the sexy cool woman because i really have nothing to say about those characters i in a way perhaps don't understand them i would find it very hard to get in the heads of, of of that kind of character so that's perhaps why i like writing the misfits because i identify with them
0: yeah i get that entirely i mean i'm trying to write a book at the minute and I, my protagonist is a, is a 80 year old man
1: Ah, interesting. Yeah, I think that writing an older character I think, is very good as well. I think there should be more books about sort of older characters too, because because again, I think it's it just makes it more interesting. It's it's nice, you know. There, there was a phase as well of books you, you could guarantee the protagonist would be I don't know about thirty two, thirty four. They were always around thirty two, thirty four. Like you know, you couldn't have a protagonist who was over forty for fear of God. No, you know, that was kind of the limit of the age you could you could have a character. Um, so, so I think you know, yeah. Like everything, it's interesting to have different characters, to have different perspectives in books, isn't it? Isn't there, isn't the belief that there's only, is it, is it five basically major stories that we all retell again and again? So again, it's that different, that different perspective you can put on them. It's the different characters you can have in them. Um, the different eyes you can see the story through. I think that that's more what makes that for a much more satisfying read.
0: Yeah, and Jack feels like both a continuation and a change of your oddball protagonist because she she's definitely difficult. And there are times I've actually winced at her kind of lack of tact, I think that's because she (laughs) goes into the grain of what a what a vicar is in, in pop culture. Yes. But she's also got I mean she has her problems, which you find out as the as the novel continues, but she's got a really good, healthy relationship with her daughter, which feels like it grounds her a little bit, whereas your previous characters have been alone and isolated. Uh, yes. or have got at least yes. very questionable relationships. And I mean, I hate getting too personal. I always think it's a bit trite. But is, is that a reflection of where you are in your life?
1: Perhaps in some ways. It's interesting. I mean, obviously, just in terms of the, the structure of a novel, having characters that are isolated, it's a it's a good device in a book anyway, obviously. It's harder to write a thriller or a mystery if you have a character who has lots of, lots of close friends around them. Yeah, I think the mother-daughter relationship, perhaps because I am a mum and I do have a, a little girl who's seven, was you know something i wanted to write about more the parent thing perhaps is coming out more in my writing now as my little girl grows up i wanted to write a female character i didn't want to write a traditional female character <laughs> um so having you know jack as the vicar and having the teenage daughter i thought it did provide a good relationship there but you know again i didn't want to make it a relationship that was too cliched um i, I didn't want to write flow as too Cliche a a teenage character either. Again, it's a fine line to work because you know she does have the slightly goth vibe. But but again, I tried to play by sort of joking about sort of that cliche in the book because I didn't want it to be a cliche if that makes sense, or at least recognise that it's it's a slight cliche. But you know, a lot of kids, you know, a lot of teenagers do kind of go down that route in clothing and and how they are. Uh, But I also wanted to be relatively switched on. I didn't want it to sort of be a a typical shrieking teenager who does stupid stuff. I want to be. I wanted her to be, you know, an intelligent character, but still with those teenage insecurities and foibles, because that's what makes teenagers so vulnerable in many ways. That, that you know they are insecure, um, and and I say you know that that again was something I wanted to play with in the book. That behind some of the bravado, she is you know still quite insecure about stuff. Um, yeah, they were they were interesting characters to write, and again, you know, as as an author, you you know you want to challenge yourself with each book and you want to write interesting characters and and this one was again a challenge for me to do something different I think that's why I couldn't write a series of books actually because for me part of the fun of each book is having a whole new sort of sandpit playground of characters to have fun with you know I, I, I would find it very dull and very constraining to kind of return to the same character in each book so hopefully in the next the next book as well you know there will be more different characters to explore and the return of, of a character actually from a previous book. She says, teasingly.
0: <laughs> I have a question about that, which I'll get to later on, so as to not derail this uh-huh. thread of conversation, but I want to come back to that. Yeah, I, I agree that Flo is a, you know, she's a rounded character. She's not a cliche. And one of the ways you really get across the fact that she's not a trivial teenage character is by giving her this love of of photography that is concrete. Yeah. Um, because I think it is very much in keeping with a trend amongst young people these days he says young people in that that cringe way that a man in his late 30s says young people (laughs) going back to to loving physical objects and and realizing how digital life isn't always as enriching as it could be yeah and and that is another actual theme in this book and it's a a theme that's come up more and more in, in in fiction especially in horror fiction technology and communication because you've isolated these characters in a in a very old world village and you said there's a folk strand to this you know so it feels old it feels off the beaten track and and initially you do the standard horror trope of yeah they've got no phone signal they've got no wi-fi they're they're quite isolated but then you kind of flip it there are several instances in the book where technology actually contributes the danger where the the anonymity of a phone call, you don't really know who's on the phone or you don't really know who's texting. They become dangerous things.
1: Well, yeah, because actually, you know, I I thought when I first started writing, actually, I I did think I I might have to do that trope of, oh, we can't get the phone signal. But then, then I found that I didn't actually want to do that. But because knowing that it is a fact of living in a small thing, as we, you know, in the middle of nowhere where we live, besides you can't get a bloody phone signal. I thought it'd be fun to have that going on to start with just, just almost for sort of a setup that then isn't, it doesn't play out the way you think it's going to play out. I, I'm not a technical person. I, as we were saying before, I said, like, I am a Luddite. I, my partner's very techie, which is good because he kind of hauls me with him a bit, otherwise I'm supposed <laughs> to be on a typewriter with a landline and, you know, a very old phone, you know, looks like a brick. But he kind of drags me along with him. Um, but but yeah, technology—it's it's, it's got two sides. And I think you know the whole thing with with teenagers being on their phones all the time, um, and that 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 kind of addiction to to the phone and to taking photos and putting filters on—I find I find it very strange. And I kind of wanted flow a bit as a teenager to question it. Hence the the photography. We we sort of present an almost alternate reality of ourselves, don't we, on social media? And I think young people. He says in a very old way as only a 49 year old can young people in particular because nothing anybody actually posts is kind of real is it you know even even photos that we you know we used to think photos you're, you're taking a picture of something real they're not real anymore because everyone filters them and photoshops them till they don't even look like human beings on them anymore they're these strange big eyes and weird blurred it's i find it really really odd and there is that idea, you know, we, we're so used to, none of us want to speak to each other anymore, do that, do we? It used to be that we used the mobile phones to occasionally speak to each other in person. But now it's like, that's too much effort. If we, can, if we can WhatsApp someone or send a text or an email, we'd far rather do that than actually converse with a real human being. And of course, you know, you don't actually know who you could be messaging sometimes. You know, you see a picture, a little picture there, and you send your message to that person. Um, and, and you presume because, you know, you, you've got their number, et cetera, that, that it is who you're contacting. So there is there isn't you know that element of, you know, the further, the, the more we depend on technology, the further we, we get apart from real human contact, don't we?
0: Weirdly, all that modernity is smashed in this novel against history and age with the church and with, you know, the things that were gone on that, that gives the, the, the novel its title. Um, so it's kind of like this modern world meets this. Folk horror, supernaturally inflected world. Why did you choose to include the potential for the supernatural in this novel? Why the ghosts of the martyr girls? Because would it not have been scary enough on its own?
1: Yeah, I guess. I just, I just quite liked. I just quite liked it. I think sometimes it's just. I I really wanted to have these quite creepy ghosts, and I liked. I liked the double meaning of the burning girls. The burning girls being the little twig effigies that the villagers burn on the anniversary of the purge of the martyrs. And also the burning girls being these sort of physical visions that Flo sees. Because I just I just thought it added just a nice extra level of creepiness. Sometimes with writing, it can be quite visual as well. And I had this this idea of Flo seeing this burning girl in the graveyard. And I really liked sort of that imagery. So certainly, it, it felt right for me to have them there. I mean, yeah, the story could probably, you know, work quite well as a, as a mystery without sort of those, the, the, the ghostly burning girls. But I, I just, I thought it created the atmosphere, the atmosphere and the imagery and the whole feel of the, the story for me.
0: You know, I know Stephen King is a a massive influence for you. I've read and seen comments you've made where I know that you love King as much as I do. When I was reading The Short Man, I could really feel the the influence of it in the back of it with the the kids and the kind of flashbacks and stuff like that. This feels like your most kind of Kingian, if that's an adjective, novel since then. Did you look at his small towns and his communities when you were creating Chapel Croft?
1: I didn't, but I think... I think small towns and small communities are always just right. They're just a great setting for horror and for mysteries and thrillers. Yes, yeah, so the Chalkman really was my homage to all the Stephen King stuff I love. I and mean, also to sort of the films of the time, you know, like the Goonies and the Lost Boys and all that type of thing. Because in the 80s, there was this big horror boom. And there were a lot of films in a similar sort of genre about groups of kids getting into dark adventures and stuff. And of course, I, you know, I was a teenager at the time. I grew up on all of that. So The Chalkman was quite a lot about my own childhood, growing up in a small sort of suburban town um, and my friends in the 80s, my little gang of friends. And it was also a big homage to sort of the Stephen King books I grew up reading and loved at the time. I was reading it as a teenager in the 80s while cycling around on my bike and going to Woolies and and building dens in the woods and all those type of things. So, you know, the book, it kind of spoke to me in a way about my life in a small town. And and that all kind of combined, I think, in the chalk, man, because I'd I'd long wanted to write that kind of Stephen King-style book that set it in the UK and kind of bring all those elements of my childhood as well. When my little girl and I started drawing these chalk figures outside on the driveway on her second birthday... As soon as i sort of had that idea about the chalk figures it, it all came together in that book um and the burning girls was very heavily influenced obviously by moving to where we moved to it seems such a good setting again for a horror thriller because small communities are great settings for horror thrillers because quite often they're, they're quite isolated quite often they do have strange histories and their own sort of very specific traditions and folklore so it, it all seemed really, really perfect ingredients for that type of horror novel. You know, King obviously you know plays upon that sort of small town paranoia, that that sort of small town claustrophobia, and so many horror and thriller books do. Obviously, it is a little bit of a trope in itself, but there's a reason why it's because it works really well. And a lot of the stuff in in the book is is sort of only little bits of the history that I've gleaned about this sort of small village where I live, because when I, I've been talking to people. They'll go, oh yes, you know, of course. And you know you know about the smuggling and the smuggler and the and the and the fight that happened up there and, and Jack so-and-so who who was killed and there used to be some secret tunnels under somewhere. I was like, really? So there's lots of stuff that didn't go into the book, another monastery or something nearby where there's a legend of something called the Screaming Skulls. So <laughs> you could see why these sort of places and that those sort of settings are really perfect for, for horror and thrillers and mysteries. Um, and you know obviously Stephen King does it so well. But, you know, other authors obviously play with that genre too. I actually just finished um, If It Bleeds, which I got for Christmas, which I really, really enjoyed, actually. Again, what I love about Stephen King is when we talk about horror is that there's very little horror, really, in any of those stories. What I found most is what Stephen King does so well is writing books that make you care about people. Because I always say you you can't really be scared or, or, or tense if you don't care about the characters.
0: You're speaking my language now. I've been banking this drum for years
1: then there was a line um in if it bleeds as well when holly is speaking to barbara the young character and they're talking about what they've been through and you know how close you know they came to sort of how close she came to death where holly says you know honey we're always close all the time and I thought that's just so it's just so right because it's true there's little throwaway lines that, uh, that he does so well that is the key really to me it's creating characters you know people care about I'm writing about real emotions that, that touch you.
0: I mean, my theory is it applies to comedy and horror because so I think the greatest sitcoms are the ones in which you care about the characters even when they're not funny, and the same the same about horror you care about the you know what they're having for breakfast as well as you know when they're being chased by the werewolf. Got to ask you though, whilst we're on the subject, what was it like in the early days of your career when when King wrote that blurb about you? What what something like if you like my stuff, you'll like this? I can only imagine the. Uh... Oh
1: my god! It was the most amazing, surreal thing because. It's weird actually because I've been getting a hammering from from some people who I think kind of missed the point that that, that I wanted the Chalkman to be a homage to King and there were deliberate nods to King in the book and I'm not stupid I wouldn't have put stuff in there if I didn't know that people who knew Stephen King would sort of pick up on some of the little nods and names and stuff um, but you know but some people did just just feel I was just trying to imitate King which I wasn't at all I wasn't and it, it hurt actually to sort of hear that I, just, I felt very much they didn't get what I was trying to do. But of course, you know, people will take what they will from books. You you know, once it's in the reader's hands, they will interpret it how they want to. And you have to get a little bit of a thick skin about that type of thing. But actually, I was on the train going into London, and I just sort of sat down and opened up my laptop to do some work. And then I immediately logged on to Twitter, as you do. And it was the very first tweet I saw, because obviously I follow Stephen King, and it just popped up at the top of my timeline. And I I started reading, if you want to read something good, thinking, I wonder what he's recommending. (laughs) And then it went on to... my book and i think i had to do a double take and then i had to double check that it was actually him and not some kind of parody account or something and it was just yeah it was amazing i think i might have actually whooped in the middle of a middle of the train carriage and then immediately phoned my husband uh it was just so amazing and it was so nice because i say on top of some people being a little bit critical of the book and the king references um to have him to kind of do that nod and a wink about if you like my stuff you'll like this It it felt amazing. It was really lovely. And I replied to him because, you know, I thought it was my my only chance to reply to Mr. King. um, Say, you know, thank you so much. This means the world because I'm a huge fan. And I remember I got back to my hotel room that night because I didn't think he'd bother replying because, you know, I thought that that would be it. But at least I replied to him. Um, I just got this reply from him just going, you rock, which was even better (laughs) than the original tweet. I was like, Stephen King says I rock. It was just amazing for him to think that, you know, this hero who I've grown up read all of his books, I've grown up reading his books. He's been there all my life. I've actually sat down and and read my book and thought it was okay. you know. (laughs) It it was just a really weird feeling. Um, But yes, still, obviously, I still get so excited about it now. Obviously, the best moment of my life after meeting my husband and having my daughter, I have to say. (laughs) But really, it was the best moment of my life.
0: For listeners, this is actually about, about CJ's book. We're having a bit of a, <laughs> We're
1: having a bit of a Stephen King fan aren't we?
0: But weirdly, I I've been to his house. Well, I've been outside his house because I, I went to I went to Bangor, Maine. Wow. I was over in America for a while, like just couch surfing around stayed with a, a, a really nice woman who put me up and she said why are you here and I said because I, I, I love Stephen King I said I'm, I'm an obsessive and she said oh well I live near Stephen King and I thought well it's a small town everyone will say that <laughs> and we got to her house and she was like that's his house and I'm, I'm not joking it was a house on the other side of the street
1: oh my god and it was just there
0: sadly he was in Florida at the time so I, was, I would have been tempted to go and ring the uh Bring the Tanoi,
1: I like to envisage him reading my book, sat in his house on some kind of I don't know, like great big leather armchair in front of a fire or something, with like gargoyles around him and things. As I say, I think you know he's one of those those authors that you know keeps bringing out. I mean, all right, some of his books have been better than others, and I think that's inevitable with such a long career. But I love the fact that he still has the love for it after all this time. 't he doesn't, he doesn't yeah. just churn them out he still has that love for writing and that he is very generous to other authors as well because there are a lot of big authors who aren't who don't give a leg up to, to debuts or, or other books and and he is he's still a reader he's still very generous and I think that's nice to know he's a good person
0: <laughs> well, all you can do is pass it on least, yeah,
1: so. yeah good. you should sort of pass it on I, mean, I don't think I'm a particularly huge author but you know I, I do try and and you know tweet about books that I've read and loved because you know, a lot of authors did that for me. And I think it's, it's a good thing to do. Um,
0: I'm going to ask you now a bit of a difficult question because it, it's always nice to kind of mix the sweet with the sour. So I want to know what you think about something. There are, there are two moments of characterisation in this book. One, where a character with a disability is revealed to be something that he's not. And possibly the cruelest act in the story is committed by the, the only black characters in the story. And I wonder whether you wrote that with any kind of worry about how that might come across down the line.
1: Um, I think you have to have that idea that, you know, all characters are capable of doing good and bad things. I generally, you know, I I wouldn't write a protagonist as a black character because I don't feel I have enough depth of knowledge to, to write that character. I always think authors should write whatever characters they want, but I also think you have to be realistic about, about your knowledge and what you can bring to a character and your life experiences, you know, and your own experiences. Um, you know, I write male characters. I'm not a bloke. But I think there's, a, there's a, still a universal kind of, you know, you, you, there's a lot of shared experiences there still. So I wouldn't attempt to write a black character because I don't feel I've got that life experience to be able to, to do it. And I think, you know, nobody wants to be guilty of cultural appropriation um, or, or get it wrong. So I think, you know, you, you have to tread carefully. But on the other hand, I, I like to think that all my characters, whether they're male, female, black, white, young, old, um, can do good things or can be in the book doing horrible things. And I don't think you should shy away from that. Yeah, in this book, yeah, the, the character with the disability, I think because of what we later learn, I, I think we sort of understand that's. I'm not trying to be ableist or trying to, victimize a character with a disability if that makes sense i think you know i mean having read the book
0: yes completely yeah
1: particularly on that point and i'll come back to the point as well because in a previous book i think it was taking of annie thorne there's a character in that a barmaid who i think joe refers to or or is refers to being on the on the spectrum the, the autistic spectrum um and i wrote her as a character who i felt actually observes joe who is the protagonist um, and kind of has his number and is and kind of knows what's going on all along. Joe's quite an acerbic character. And he does make a couple of derogatory comments earlier on um, in his sarcastic, quipping way. And I didn't really think anything of it, but, but someone did take offence at that. And they felt I was being derogatory to an autistic character. And they were really quite offended by it. And, you know, I, I, I did engage with them actually. Obviously, that was not my intention. And my intention of this character is that, you know, she actually... He's kind of the one who is more knowing and intelligent than Joe, actually. He's the one who's a bit of an idiot in in some regards. He is this sarcastic character. Um, But also, I don't think that he's any more sarcastic about her than he is about anybody else, because that is his character. And and I think it's also important to differentiate, you know, I am the author. I am not the character. So I was, yeah, when I wrote the character in The Burning Girls, (laughs) we keep saying the character so as not to give too much away, I was very conscious of that. At the same point, because of what we later know, I think that kind of—I won't say—covers it.
0: Basically, I think what we should say is that anyone reading this book who has worries about your presentation of disability should reserve judgment until she they. Should reserve judgment the book. until they,
1: yeah, they reach the reach the end of it. I mean, I mean, also when when I was writing the character initially, I wanted him to be somebody that you—they not felt sorry for that—you you had sympathy with, but also another odd another oddball another outsider who develops this, you know, this bond, this friendship with with Flo. So I wanted to, to sort of play upon that fact that they're both kind of misfits who find each other to a degree. Yeah, and again, you know, I did think twice about the other characters who, who sort of commit the, the terrible act. But then, you know, I thought the church um, where Jack moves from in Nottingham is based very much upon a church that I used to live near in an area of St Anne's. So, it, you know, it was largely black congregation congregation. It was a, a well-attended church. And and yet, it seemed to me when I started writing it, I shouldn't shy away from the fact that these characters had done, also done something awful. And, you know, I could have changed them to being white characters, but then there are a lot of white characters doing absolutely awful things in the book too. And I think if, if I had then changed it, part of me feels that that would have been copping out to a degree. I think that, you know, I say that there are plenty of white characters that I write about that do awful things. So, why shouldn't those characters, those black characters, also be responsible for something bad that happens? If it was solely a black character doing a bad thing, um, black characters do get written as the you know as the criminals so much. But I think in the context of the whole book, um, there's there's plenty of white people doing atrocious <laughs> acts as well, more so. So I, yeah, I decided that I, I thought it should stay in because it was correct for the setting. It was correct for the church. Um, and, and it, was cor- it was correct in that context. I think you have to look at it within the context of the whole book and all your characters. Um, and sometimes go, am I changing this? I, I don't want to use the term politically correct because I hate that term. But am I changing this for the wrong reasons? It can be difficult, Grant. And I-, I know another author who wrote um, a historical book regarding the slave trade and w- suffered in some reviews because because of of, of some things to do with the ending and the black characters without wanting to give away the author of the book or or the ending. Um, I think the idea was that this person felt that the black characters should have all been good, and only the white characters in the book should have been bad. But that There's a level
0: of condescension there, isn't there?
1: There is a level of condescension, exactly, and that's the thing I think you also want to avoid, because I think, as I said right at the start, we were talking about characters, we can all be good and bad, you know?
0: Well, I'm glad to ask you that question, though, because it was a, it was a great answer. To to finish up with something a little less uh, heavy, your previous novel, The Other People, yes. um, is about a kind of shade. For those who haven't read it, it's about this sub community on, on the dark web. These vigilantes who work to kind of right injustices through any means necessary, and it, it strikes me as a really fertile ground for storytelling. I, I was going to ask you. I was going to say the character in that book of the Samaritan feels like one of those characters that could run and run. And it puts me in <laughs> mind of, of series fiction, very much like something like John Connolly's Charlie Parker books. That's how it, yeah. it feels to me. I wonder, do you have any plans to revisit that world?
1: Possibly. Um, I like The Samaritan's a character, and I would I would quite like to bring him back because I think he's just a cool character. <laughs> and you, The Other People has actually been optioned for TV. and Again, you know, options we don't know always. whether they will ever come off. Um, But obviously, that when when I remember talking to the producers, they very much felt there was a lot of mileage to be gained out of that character and the whole concept that, you know, you could take the initial premise of the book and kind of run off in multiple directions with it. And, yeah, I think, funny enough, in book five, there is a, a, a small reference to the other people, which, you know, you will get if you've read the book. I don't bring back a character from the other people in book five. However, I do bring back another character from a previous book. I do like the idea that all my books exist in the same universe. So I do drop in the least eggs. And I definitely would consider bringing back Samaritan. Maybe not in a full length novel, because the book I have planned for book six kind of moves a little bit away from that universe. But maybe, yeah, maybe in a short story or novella, certainly as an interim. You often have characters which you have a fondness for. And it has to be the right book, though. It has to be the right book, the right story that just lends itself to them kind of coming back. Um, and I, yeah, I definitely think I, I could get sort of, there could be a situation to bring that character back.
0: What can you tell us about your next book? Can you tell us anything at all?
1: Yes, because I'm still writing it. I haven't got a very, very, I'm not very good at doing an elevator pitch at the best of times, unless it was a very, very long elevator <laughs> journey up, many, many stories up and down a few times. Quite often, I come back to ideas that I've had a while ago. And this was based upon a book that I started writing many, many years ago, but I couldn't quite make the whole idea work. Um, and, And I have a fascination with sort of fate and changing fate and those little moments where if you'd done something slightly differently, something else would never have happened or, you know, something else would have happened. And the book starts with a boy walking into a classroom and shooting dead. Um, several classmates which is kind of the, the sort of first prologue um, but it, what it actually centers centers on is a, a mother and a daughter who both share a fairly unique gift of foresight the next chapter starts with a little girl on a plane tapping the man who's in the seat in front of her on the shoulder and telling him to put on his seatbelt, um, <laughs> and then within sort of minutes the window on his side of the plane, blows out. And had he not put on his seatbelt, he would have been sucked out of the plane. Um, as it is, he catches a stewardess who's about to fly out of the window and, and stops her going. And, and kind of people think he's a hero. As it turns out, he's a serial killer. Um, and she's just saved his life. It sounds quite complicated. It's less complicated than that. But it's, it's called The sixth, basically. Um, and it, it sort of centers on the mother and daughter. And that, that question, basically, if we, if we should change fate... If we could change fate, if we saw something happening, we could change it. Should we? I would pitch it as the dead zone meets seven.
0: No, that sounds great.
1: Um, and as I said, I, I have had great fun because I've, I've been able to bring back a character from the previous book who, who plays quite an important role in this one. So that's quite fun too.
0: So is that next January?
1: It is out, yeah, next January. God, it, it's always so weird, isn't it? Because when you're writing, because you work quite a long way in advance, you're sort of in the moment of that book, but you're like, God, it's not going to come out for another year. And I'll be writing book six by the time that comes out. So you're always kind of a little bit out of time with it all.
0: Are you going to come back on the show to talk to us about it when it comes out?
1: Yeah, you would love to.
0: Excellent. Right. Well, it's a lot to look forward to. That's all down the line. Uh, first of all, everyone go and read The Burning Girls. It's it, it's a great thriller.
1: Please do. Please please order it from somewhere. <laughs> six as the bookshops are shut.
0: Yeah, buy, buy it from your local bookseller. I've got four questions that I ask each guest just to close off the interview, if that's okay. Yes. So with this, I always say, just throw me the answer that comes straight to mind. So question one, what was your gateway to horror?
1: I would say Stephen King, but probably my gateway to creepiness before Stephen King happened when I was about seven or eight and I was reading stuff like the Hamlin True Book of Ghosts. And that was kind of really, I think, my, my gateway into realising I liked scaring the shit out of myself.
0: I remember that kind of stuff well. If you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: Oh, I usually say The Shining because I think it's a classic. Um, I think it's a great introduction to my favourite writer, Stephen King. Um, and also, do you know what? It's it's a great book in that it reminds us there's there's a, a place for the slow burn. There's a place for the building of atmosphere. We're kind of told as authors now that we have to write a bit like films and TV we have to go straight in bang with that that opening chapter the shiny is a great way to remember that sometimes taking your time and building that insidious creeping dread is a good way to write a book and kind of how books used to be written and I really love it for that I really love it for that the fact that nothing really much happens in the first third of the book but all the time subconsciously there is this creeping dread that you you find is actually building that you didn't realize
0: that's a great answer completely agree with you what, what are your thoughts on The Shining film?
1: The original? The,
0: the Kubrick, yeah.
1: Um, did you? No, I, I really like the film as a film. I completely understand why King himself, and many people hate it, for the characterisation, because the characters are not the characters from the book at all. Um, and Shelley, it is Shelley Duvall, isn't it? Yes. Um, yes. Her character is such a victim in the film. She, she's so annoying. She has a terrible, terrible character in the film. Um, and, and I love Jack Nicholson and he is brilliant in his own way in the film, but he, it, there's no nuance in the character. There's no, there's no feeling that this is someone who is going. This, he started off basically nuts from the start. So, yeah. But also visually and so many ways, I do love the film because I think visually it's an absolute treat.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm probably being unfair. I just, I love the book so much. It, it, it Yeah, I found it.
1: I love the book and I, I treat them as completely different beasts. And I think sometimes book adaptations for film or TV should be different beasts.
0: My, my thing, I'm going on there, but my thing with it is, you know, The Shining Ends, where like there is a moment of self-sacrifice.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah.
0: The fact that they take that out and just make him a madman with an axe, I find rids the entire story of its point.
1: It does, and well, there's no progression with that character. That you you don't give him the backstory, really. You just make him this this insane character from the start, and then you don't give him his give him any redemption either, um, which which I feel you need. It, I love to watch it, but as a story, it it misses so much of what was in the story. Yeah.
0: Question three: What piece of advice would you give to a fledgling novelist?
1: Finish the book. <laughs> Sounds like a really basic thing. But honestly, I think the hardest thing when you start to write is actually getting to the end of a book. Because I and mean, I don't know if you're like me, I find that I get to a hump at about 200 pages, where I don't know what I'm doing, where I don't know where I'm going. I mean, I'm not a planner. So this, this could be because I'm a panster, where I, I'm not sure if anything I've written is any good. And getting to the end of it seems insurmountable. And also by that point, this may again just be me, I quite often have a lovely, shiny new idea that I want to write. And there's always the temptation of the lovely, shiny new idea, because the lovely, shiny new idea is perfect. It will be so good. It will be. It's so much better than this book that I'm currently writing and hate. If only I could go and write the lovely, shiny new idea and not have to finish this one, because it's become hard. A lot of authors have said the same thing to me. You have to get over that hump when the book gets hard and you hate it. And you're not sure if you know you're going to make it come together because you will even if you get to the end and find that actually it is still crap you've finished something and you know i do believe in that old adage you cannot edit a blank page if you've got something to work with you can go back and if there's some good stuff in there you can you can make it work but you've got to get to the end and not give up part way through
0: Excellent advice. That's, that is that is useful. Thank you for exactly where I'm at, to be honest. So thank you very much. And lastly, to finish off, my favourite question, what truly scares you?
1: I'm very boring, really, I guess. You know, it, it's basic, normal things like heights. I'm really scared of heights. Things that I think are quite sensible to be scared of, <laughs> because falling from a great height is not good. Um, I, I think I'm more scared of really dull, mundane things these days because I have a daughter who's seven. And so I, I seem to constantly be be looking looking out for ways in which she could hurt herself or you know something could go terribly wrong. Um, in terms of sort of, I don't know, horror scares or anything like that, I still have this really, really weird overriding fear of zombies. Um, which is, is probably just not right for a for a grown woman, but still if I'm outside in the dark and I have to turn my back and, and get back to the the bright light of the, the open front door I still have this fear that a zombie's going to come out of the darkness and, and try and grab me or that I'll close the door just as a zombie throws himself against the door and a blood-smeared hand drags down the window but I think that might just be my overactive imagination although perhaps it just could be good prep because you know I, I seriously still wonder if we are on our way for the towards the zombie apocalypse at the moment.
0: everyone to your house and let it all blow over
1: basically yeah I think I think you know a lot I think horror writers are in, uh, in good stead. For, for whatever happens next because we're all prepared for the zombie apocalypse
0: oh and yeah exactly we have all weathered Covid relatively well one because we all sit at home right now they would have to go out and two yeah. because we've read what happens next
1: inherently we're just expecting it
0: <laughs> anyway right well thank you very much for spending so much time with me it's a great book I've really enjoyed talking to you CJ Tudor thanks for talking Scared <laughs> let's get straight to it The Shining I was braced for outrage about my opinions on Kubrick's film Uh, I proffered my opinion on Twitter going so far as to say that Doctor Sleep is actually a better movie to be fair a lot of people came out of the woodwork and agree with me but you know when you kick that particular sandcastle you always get grief I did write my opinion whilst in the middle of watching Doctor Sleep, and my love for that film may have waned a little bit in the days since. But I still stand by the argument that The Shining is an appalling adaptation, and even if taken as a film in its own right, it it fails to scare or really emotionally engage the viewer. So, he says, inviting trouble, what do you think? Let me know at Pod. Even if you want to swear at me, at least I'll know that you listened to the end of this show. Speaking of the show, CJ was a great guest. Like I say, I had to cut out a lot of us just laughing. Her books are great, and if you're after that pure hit of storytelling, they've got lots of cross plot lines, intricate mysteries, likeable characters, and despite her saying that she likes a slow burn story, her tales do not hang about. She's at the forefront of a British horror resurgence and I can't wait to see where she goes with this new focus on the weird that she mentions. Hopefully she'll be back on the show when the sixth is published. We mentioned a few other books in our conversation, as we always do. This week they're all worth noting. First of all, there is The Shining and at risk of being blacklisted by the horror community, I'll say no more about that except it's the single greatest haunted house novel ever written all right, it's a hotel, but you, you get the point. CJ also mentioned If It Bleeds, which is King's recent collection of novellas that he published last summer. King does a lot of his best work in the novella form, you know, Four Past Midnight, Full Dark, No Stars, different seasons, is one of his best books, Full Stop. He often uses the novella to play outside the horror sandbox with, with great character studies in particular. If It Bleeds isn't up to that usual standard, I'm afraid. The title story is taken from the Holly Gibney universe. She's a character who emerged in Mr. Mercedes and its sequels and in the follow-up The Outsider. And I'm not a fan of that serialised approach that, that King's taken to, to those characters currently. I like when he, when he writes something, does it well and moves on. This series feels to me like he's spinning his wheels a little bit. There are two tales in If It Bleeds that make the book well worthwhile, Rat and The Life of Chuck, one of which is very, very, very King, and the other is one of the most experimental things he's done in years. They're very good, but overall the book feels like a bit of a clean out of King's writing desk, and it just furthers my insistence that he's got something big coming that he's not telling us about. Lastly, CJ mentioned The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton, and Long-time listeners, listen to me, long-time listeners, I have been got about 20 weeks, but listeners from the start may have heard Stu on the show back in episode 6, and he remains one of my favourite guests. Evelyn Hardcastle was his first novel, followed up by last year's The Devil in the Dark Water, and bolted the traditional Agatha Christie Sherlock Holmes murder mystery and smash it by force into other genres. Evelyn Hardcastle took place in a time-warp sci-fi premise whilst Devil in the Dark Water relocates the detective to a 16th century trading ship. Both are fantastic reads that you'll lose yourself in and stay there quite a while. They're big books. So that's this week's reading story for you anyway. But yeah, I want to know what you are reading. Have you read anything recently that we've discussed on the show? Did you like it? Did you hate it? What are you looking forward to? Let me know on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me directly at talkingscaredpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you like the show, and I know that some of you do, you keep coming back week after week, then hit the subscribe button and get a new conversation every Wednesday. As ever, if anyone can leave me a a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, you'll be my favourite person for the year. It's what pumps us up in the charts and gives us the chance to keep this horror train rolling. One last thing. I asked listeners for suggestions of which horror films to watch this week. The winning nomination was The Borderlands, suggested by Luke Masterson. i would seen it before, but that last scene does not get old. So thanks, Luke. And maybe I'll do that every week. I always want to know what's good to watch. Next week, we have the Doyenne of Gothic herself, Laura Purcell. Coming to talk about her new book, The Shape of Darkness. Until then, ding dong, the tangerine is gone. Celebrate democracy. Remain optimistic. Hunker down and wait for this to all blow over. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.